I want to start again this evening by just thanking you for being here. We have a good audience for Wednesday. You know, sometimes they call Wednesday hump day, but really in my book, it's probably more slump day because people are tired. And, uh, you know, you've now been coming to services, some of you probably every time here for, uh, you know, the last several nights and on last Sunday, and we're kind of in the middle of the meeting. Uh, but I'm glad you're here tonight, and I appreciate so very much uh, your attendance and also your interest in the gospel and in just learning about the scriptures. Now, tonight we're going to do something a little bit different. different. Uh, usually I like to do expository lessons where we just take the text and uh, go through it verse by verse. And uh, tonight I'm going to do something different. First of all, I'm going to do a PowerPoint, uh, which I haven't done here yet. So the equipment, of course, is a little bit new for me. Uh, but secondly, I'm going to give a new study that I've never given before. In fact, I just finished it up this afternoon, and I'm sure it needs a lot of tweaking. But you're going to get the rough draft tonight because I hope in the future to preach this and study this in other places where I go, including my home congregation. But I want us to talk tonight about arguably one of the most controversial topics and figures in all of the New Testament. You know, there are a lot of people in the New Testament who, uh, you know, have interesting stories behind them. Peter, for example, that we've discussed in uh, a couple of lessons, uh, and of course others in the New Testament especially. But I want tonight to look at the thief on the cross. You know, that's a very interesting character. He's an interesting individual because what we see is we see a man who was uh, obviously steeped in sin, a very uh, unrighteous, wicked man, and yet uh, somehow, against all odds, he finds himself next to Jesus on the cross, being crucified, and then, according to our faith, we believe that he found himself in paradise with Jesus as well. Now, that individual is an interesting character, not so much because of what Jesus did to him or for him, but because it represents, I think, sometimes our misunderstanding of the scriptures. There have been a lot of theories concocted around uh, the thief on the cross and, you know, the various ideas about his salvation. And so I want us tonight to sort of analyze the thief on the cross and uh, look at what this man was and who he was and what Jesus said to him and uh, why it was that this man was saved. Well, we're going to stick pretty close tonight to uh, our points, and I always put too much on a PowerPoint slide, but I do that for a purpose, uh, because it's, while it's harder on the audience, I download things to a, to a site called AuthorStream, and I want people who just log on to AuthorStream and look at PowerPoint slides to know exactly where I'm going and exactly what I've said. So you'll have to bear with me tonight. Hopefully from the conversation we'll have about this, you'll pick this up. I know the text is going to be pretty small. The font's going to be pretty hard to read. But here's the points tonight that we want to ponder. Number one, who were the two thieves? Number two, why are so many people interested in at least one of these particular thieves? Number three, was the thief on the cross really saved? Number four, what relationship did this thief possess with the old Mosaic system? Number five, what relationship did he possess with Jesus? Or did he come to know with Jesus? And then number six, uh, if the thief was saved, how does this impact our salvation today? Now, we won't necessarily look at every one of these points in detail or necessarily in this order, but I hope that by the time we kind of finish our study tonight, you will have at least a view about what at least I believe about these points. Well, let's first of all look not at the single thief, the thief that was saved, 
But let's look in, uh, just in general at the thieves that surrounded Jesus. Now, typically, we focus in the religious world on the thief that uh, was saved. But, you know, there was another thief there as well. In fact, I think his life would make a very interesting study because while one thief uh, came to accept Jesus Christ, the other came to revile Jesus Christ. But what about these two thieves? Well, first of all, these two thieves probably had been some of the worst people of society. We know that they were robbers. And likely, since they are crucified, they probably had other crimes to their credit as well, maybe even murder, because uh, history tells us in some areas that Rome usually didn't crucify someone who had just stolen something. But nonetheless, these men are robbers. They're probably even cohorts of Barabbas. You remember Barabbas was the one who, for, uh, had, for insurrection, had been thrown in jail, uh, prison, and really should have been here on the cross where Jesus ended up. Uh, there that day, but the Jews had asked for Barabbas to be released from jail, from prison, set free, and they wanted Jesus crucified uh, instead. So it's very likely that these three individuals should have gone together in sort of a lump sum. Nonetheless, now we have Jesus in the middle, and we have these two thieves to the side. Now, there's something very interesting that has nothing really to do with our study tonight, but I'm going to throw this in because I find it interesting. You know, when we think about Barabbas, uh, you know, his name means the son of the father, Barabbas. You remember Sunday we talked about uh, Simon being the son of John, Bar-Jonah? Well, Barabbas means the son of the father. And it's sort of this twist of irony to me that the Jews chose to release into the world the son of the father, but really chose to crucify the father's son. And so here are these two thieves uh, be, uh, you know, on the flanking the father's son or Jesus Christ, the son of God. And both of these thieves at first seem to mock Jesus. In fact, it seems that you know, initially neither one of them want to give credit to Jesus or accept who he is. But somewhere in that long hour of agony on the cross, one of them has a change of mind. He begins to show remorse and even comes to acknowledge Jesus as a king who is going to enter his kingdom. And even to some degree acknowledges that Jesus has some way that he can save him on a spiritual level. And so then, again, it's very interesting, these two thieves and the contrast they have. Well, you know, all of that proves that uh, really prophecy is correct. Because over there in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, a great chapter about the death of Jesus, he is said to die, or he was going to die, uh, you know, with the transgressors. Well, here he is, literally numbered with the transgressors. I want to read the account, just the brief account in Luke's gospel. You can find little tidbits also in other gospels about these two thieves. But in Luke 23, we find, I think, probably the uh, most complete account it says, and one of the criminals who was hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the, answer, the other answered rather and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? Now, obviously, this is after, uh, you know, uh, this one who is on the right side of things begin to study his own condition and begins to look at Jesus and who he really was. So now one thief begins to take up for Jesus, whereas previously both had reviled Jesus. But the one thief says, listen, what are you talking about? Why are you acting this way toward this man, Jesus Christ? He says, don't you even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? 
And then notice what he says. He says, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So it's a very interesting conversation that first of all goes on between the two thieves and then of course the thief then with Jesus and how that Jesus rewards this man's penitent behavior by saying, you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, before we look at the details of this, why are so many interested in this one thief? You know, I probably have heard uh, maybe all of one or two sermons uh, in my lifetime on the evil thief. And uh, yet when I talk to friends in the religious world, especially the idea of the thief on the cross comes up quite frequently. Why are we interested in this thief on the cross that apparently has a repentant heart and whom apparently Jesus saves? Well, I think there are at least four reasons. At least these are ones that I've kind of concocted in my own mind. And I don't know that I think like everyone else, but nonetheless, I think there are four reasons perhaps that these, this figure intrigues, intrigues us. Number one, I'm going to call that the sociological reason. You know, the, this thief, this, this thief that has this penitent change that comes about him represents, I think, the sin that we often see in our culture and our society. You know, this man was an evil man. All of those in Rome, even the Jews, recognized this man as an evil man. He was the worst of society. And, of course, today we have those in our society who kind of are at the bottom, and uh, they, they intrigue us. So maybe, at least for some, this man represents, you know, what society can really fall to. Number two, I'm going to say the philosophical reason. Now, the philosophical reason is, uh, I think, more along the lines of, of where this thief finds himself and the introspection that this thief has. You know, really, when we think about death, uh, it's very serious. And most of us, I think, when we think about death, or maybe if you've been around those who are dying, uh, they become much less frivolous. And that's exactly what happens with this particular thief. He begins to think quite seriously about his eternal state and begins to rebuke the other thief and even ask Jesus, listen, I know you're a king of some kind. Uh, will you allow me to be in your kingdom when you enter into that? So this man obviously had some philosophical things, some deep philosophical thoughts going on. I think there's also a theological uh, reason that we're interested because, you know, when we see this thief on the cross, no matter what we end up believing about his salvation or how he was saved, we see the grace and the mercy of a loving God. How can God take someone this so, cl uh, so close to his death and, you know, a man who seems unredeemable and yet he is redeemed, he's saved, and we see the abundant mercy and grace of God being poured out uh, on this thief. So obviously from a theological perspective, this thief means a lot as we study him. But I think there's one more reason. And I don't want to be pejorative. I don't want to poke, uh, you know, uh, accusing fingers at anyone. But typically when I discuss the thief on the cross with my friends, they're interested in the way this man was saved simply because of their argument that we do not have to be baptized to be saved. And that typically is what I hear. I don't hear so much about the other reasons or about the depth of God's grace and mercy as much as it is seemingly a justification for us today on this side of the cross 
not to do what Jesus asks us to do. So that's really where I want to analyze this situation tonight. Now, here's the way the syllogism goes. Now, a syllogism is just a way of stating some logical facts. If A and B are true, then supposedly C is true. Now, by the way, a syllogism can be mistaken, and I think that's what this is when people use this argumentation. But here's the argumentation that I hear quite frequently when I talk about the thief on the cross with folks. They'll say, you know, the thief on the cross was never baptized. He was not baptized. And so then, when we look at this thief, he did not enter the waters of baptism, and yet Jesus, premise two, saves the thief on the cross. So premise one, this thief was not baptized. Premise two, this thief was saved. Therefore, we can be saved today without baptism. Now, on the surface, that sounds fairly logical. But now, a syllogism has to also take into consideration the facts surrounding the premises. And so, as we're going to notice, the syllogism breaks down because of several reasons. And we want to start looking at those. Now, first of all, let's just talk about the thief on the cross and whether he really was saved. You know, of course, there's the conversation that Jesus has, today you will be with me in paradise. Is Jesus just simply saying, well, you know, today you're going to be dead like I'm going to be dead? Was there something more to that? Was Jesus really saving the thief on the cross? Well, I think clearly the answer is yes. Because I think when we look at the idea of paradise in the scriptures, and that's an interesting study. We won't go into it in depth. But it truly is a place of joy. It's a place of great rejoicing. And I think, as we'll notice in a moment, our paradigm for that is going to be Luke 16, where we have the story of the rich man, the account of the rich man, and Lazarus. So what is paradise? Well, paradise is, shall we say, the good part of the departed realm of the dead. You see, when we die, having lived, our fate is fixed. And according to Luke 16, we enter either as we go into the realm of the dead, which is called the Hadean realm. Remember uh, Sunday we talked about Jesus saying he would go into the Hadean realm and even the gates of Hades or Hades would not prevail against him. Jesus was going to go into the departed realm of the dead. He was actually going to die. But apparently, according to Luke 16, that place of the departed dead has, shall we say, two parts. There appears to be, from a human perspective of language, a great gulf between the two. You can't cross back and forth. But those who are righteous, such as Lazarus was in Luke 16, uh, go to a place called paradise. It's also called Abraham's bosom. But those who are wicked go to torment or to Taurus. Well, there, apparently, you await the final judgment and then, of course, the final fate. So in other words, when Jesus says, today you're going to be within well, with me in paradise, I think we can, we can infer that Jesus himself was going to be in paradise. That's what it means when he went into the Hadean realm. He did not go to the fires of hell, by the way, which I've heard some radio preachers try to say. He went to paradise, and along with him, he took the thief on the cross who was saved. And so, again, unsaved people don't end up in paradise, theologically speaking. So was this man saved? Yes, I believe he was saved. Now, here's where we begin to then to get into a little bit more of the doctrinal side, and that is, was the thief on the cross baptized? Now, we'll talk in a moment about, you know, what covenant he lived under and that sort of thing, but was the thief on the cross baptized? Now, typically, one would say, 
Remember the syllogism. The thief was not baptized, therefore I don't have to be baptized either today. That's kind of the argument. People who want to diminish the importance, yea, the necessity of baptism would say, well, the thief was not baptized. Do you, have you ever thought about that? Because in reality, that assertion is an unproven, unwarranted assertion. We cannot say that the thief on the cross was not baptized. Now, we can say that the thief on the cross was not baptized with New Testament baptism. That's true. But you realize that John, the forerunner of Jesus, baptized for the remission of sins. You'll find that in Mark 1.4. And so it is possible, just as possible as he wasn't, that the thief on the cross was baptized. Now, I'm not making a case that he was baptized. I'm just saying that when people argue that the thief on the cross was not baptized, that could be very likely a fallacious argument because he very well may have been baptized. Now, let's look at the scriptures that would at least give some circumstantial evidence in that direction. In Matthew chapter 3, it speaks of all of Jerusalem and Judea going out and all of the region about going out and were baptized by John. Now, of course, we have to allow that this language does not include every single human being alive in Jerusalem and Judea. But we also have to allow that there were great masses of people going out and being baptized by John, having heard his preaching. And so it is possible anyway that the thief was baptized. In Luke 7, we find, and when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. And so again, while I'm not arguing that the thief was baptized, I'm saying that to say the thief was not baptized is not where we want to begin the discussion. Because again, we can't prove that either way. We don't know if the thief was baptized with John's baptism, which by the way, was for the remission of sins and was commanded for those on the other side of the cross. Now, the side of the cross that we're on is going to make a huge difference in this discussion and in our study tonight. Because those baptized or those living on the other side before Jesus died were under one covenant, as we'll notice, and those who live this side, as in today, from Jesus' death on, live under a new covenant. So then, what do we learn? Well, if the thief was baptized, then, of course, he was completing the command for that time. Now, obviously, if he was baptized and he repented, he reneged on the repentance. But again, it would have been the baptism of John. John's baptism was only valid before the cross. And, of course, that's a great study in and of itself. But the point, again, I'm making is that before we just make a rash statement about this thief, we have to be careful that we don't consider all the facts. So, the thief on the cross then, when we talk about his baptism or lack thereof, is not going to be a paradigm for our salvation today. He, again, lived under another covenant, as we'll notice. He had a special relationship with Jesus, as we'll notice. And so then... It is something we can learn lessons from, but I don't believe we can begin the argument about our salvation by beginning with the thief on the cross. Now, here's something we need to understand. Until Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, the old covenant was still in effect. The thief died under the old law. You know, today we live under a new covenant. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, uh, we find the, the promise of this new covenant. In fact, it begins really with Jeremiah 31, 31. 
Jeremiah prophesied that there would be coming a day when a new covenant, not the Mosaic law, but a new covenant would be given to God's people. But in Hebrews 8 verse 8 it says, And finding fault with them, that is the people, God said, Behold, the days come when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So we know that the Jews look for a new covenant. We know today we are under that new covenant from what the New Testament tells us. We live under the new covenant and Jesus was the mediator of that new covenant. Now a mediator is one that brings it into effect. And until Jesus died, of course, that covenant was not in effect. So when Jesus spoke with that man, he was still alive. He was under the old covenant. Hebrews 9 verse 15 says, And for this cause, he, that is Christ, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, by the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they, were all, they that which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And then also in Hebrews 12, 24, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And so then we see then that Jesus was going to bring in a new covenant, but just like a will is not in vogue or not in power until the, 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 the person who makes it dies, so this man, uh, the thief, was living under a time before Jesus died and the new will came into effect. So he therefore was under the old law. Now, the thief died under the Old Testament. And of course, there must be of necessity the death of the one who uh, makes the will before that will comes into effect. When Jesus again spoke to the thief on the cross, they both were alive under the old law. You know, Jesus was born under the old law. In fact, Galatians tells us that he was born under the law, born of a woman, and he submitted himself to the law. But that law, of course, was going to eventually come to an end. And so here's what we need to learn. We must not attempt to justify ourselves today by going back to the old law, whether that is specifically the Old Testament or a case example of salvation under the Old Testament. The law was taken out of the way. It was nailed to the cross, Paul says in Colossians 2.14. And of course, Paul even warned the Galatians that if they sought to be justified by the law, they had fallen from the grace system that God was bringing in through Jesus. Now, here's another point we need to consider. It doesn't really matter what this man, this thief on the cross, and how he was saved uh, directly anyway, because, you know, Jesus had the power to forgive sins. And Jesus could tell someone at that period, your sins are forgiven, and then tell us today, but here's what you need to do to be saved. And so we dare not go back and use a case like this to prove what we need to do to be saved today. But Jesus had the power to forgive sins. In fact, you'll find on various occasions in Mark chapter 9, for time's sake, I won't read that, but also in Luke 7, you'll find that on at least two occasions, Jesus forgave people of their sins. So Jesus had the right, even under the law of Moses, to forgive people of their sins and did on various occasions. And so then, he had the right to, at the very last moment of the thief's life, pronounce him to be sinless or to be forgiven anyway, and therefore enjoy the bliss of paradise. Now, we are not the thief today. And I think that's one of the things that we have to look at when we uh, interpret any Bible passage. We have to look at the context. We have to look at to whom the passage was written. We have to look at uh, what other passages in the scripture say 
That's what we call hermeneutics, or biblical interpretation. Now, no matter what Jesus said to the thief on the cross, we are not that thief. And so what Jesus says to that thief may be interesting. It may even be applicable if we can find passages that demand that. But we are not that thief, so we at least have to bear in mind that that is not written directly to us. It's there for our learning, of course, but it's not necessarily what we must do to be saved. Well, what do we need to do to be saved today? Well, we must be baptized. We must be. There's no way around it. In Matthew chapter 28, as Jesus gave the Great Commission, one of the last things Jesus says to his apostles is, go and preach to all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He commands them to baptize. Now, this is after the thief is already dead and buried. This is after Jesus has arisen from the dead. This is the latest teaching, so to speak. And Jesus says, baptism is absolutely essential. In Mark 16, verse 16, he who believes, Jesus says, and is baptized will be saved. Now, again, this is after the thief has already been pronounced saved. This is after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. This is the latest word from the Savior. And he says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And so then, no matter what Jesus had said to the people previous, those two examples, or to the thief, this then supersedes that because this is the latest word from Jesus. Now, what do we find as we go through the church history? Well, on the day of Pentecost, when the church was established in Acts chapter 2, when those that were listening to Peter's preaching heard the gospel preached, they were cut to the heart. They, with wicked hands, had crucified the Lord of glory. And so they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, this is long after the uh, thief on the cross has been pronounced uh, on the cross saved. This is, again, the latest word from the apostolic authority about what needs to be done to be saved. And so, you see, we don't go back to the Old Testament or to that scenario of the cross and the thief to prove what then we must do today. We look to the apostles' doctrine. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, immediately... When the church was established, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Peter later on, many years after his foibles and his weakness as a young disciple, would write this at an older age. He says, as he speaks of Noah and the flood and how the water bore Noah up and uh, saved him, he says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of the dirt of the flesh, but the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Peter, long after the church was established, is still preaching and still writing that we must be baptized to be saved. Now, is there anything then that we can learn from the thief on the cross? Is it meaningless? Well, no, in fact, it's really quite significant. And I wanna spend the last just few minutes on the typical nature of the salvation of the thief on the cross. Now, types and antitypes, or types and shadows, are replete in the Old Testament uh, as they point to Jesus. For example, when we think of, uh, you know, the, the, the Lamb of God, for example. You remember in John 1, 29, uh, John sees Jesus coming, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. 
Now, where did John pick that up? Well, he picked that up, obviously, from the old law. Because the lamb, for example, the Passover lamb, surely pointed toward the fulfillment that ultimately would come in Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of the lamb motif. And, of course, over and over in the Old Testament, you find things that, that remind us or point us to things that are realities in the New Testament. The tabernacle, for example, with its holy place and most holy place, Hebrews indicates that that is a, was a type of the church and heaven. The priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament points toward the priesthood of believers, of which, of course, we enjoy today as Christians. We can approach God in prayer. The high priest of the Old Testament pointed ultimately to that mediator, Jesus Christ, who is the one that stands as we are priests between us and God. He is the high priest. And so over and over and over, we see these pictures in the Old Testament that are typical of the reality in the New Testament. Now, we have to be careful with types. In fact, we could do a whole study on that, I suppose. Uh, and again, I even hesitated to call the thief on the crosses uh, salvation a type. I think it's, it, it's, it, there's some parallels there. It may not be a type in the truest sense. But there are some things that I think are very interesting as we look at how the thief was saved and how the New Testament tells us we are saved today. Now, truly, the thief lived under the Old Covenant. He was never under the New Covenant. The thief, again, was uh, you know, directly pronounced being saved by Jesus we don't have that today. We have to comply with the new covenant and with the words of Jesus through the book. But there are similarities that I think are very interesting and very important. Now, again, back to this idea of the type. You know, a type is kind of a picture. Uh, here we find uh, a little chart, an ancient chart, old chart, uh, where, of course, uh, John 3.14 is quoted, where it says that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You know, the way I like to look at types, and you'll have to excuse me, I hope I don't get too uh, tied up in this. We're almost done, by the way. But, you know, a type and a shadow, or a type and a type, is, uh, the way I like to illustrate it is like a tree. You know, um, if, if, if someone blindfolds you, and uh, you, you feel a tree, you're going to know something about it. Or if you turn your back to the tree, and the sun is to your back, and the tree, you can look out over the ground, and you can see the shadow. And you may recognize that as a tree. But now that shadow is not going to include the various individual leaves necessarily. It's not going to necessarily show you the birds in the tree. It's not going to show you the color. There are going to be many things, even maybe fruit on that tree, that the shadow never deals with. Because you can't see clearly. You're looking at a shadow. But when you turn to the tree and you look at it face value, you're going to see the real reality of that tree. You're going to see the individual leaves. You're going to see the veins in the leaves. You're going to see the color. You're going to see maybe even a squirrel or a bird in that tree. That's the real thing you see. Well, that's kind of the way the Old Testament and the New Testament is. It's been said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So when we look at those things under the old, those ordinances and those various systems under the old law, and then we turn to Jesus... We say, oh, that's what it was pointing to. You know, we see the tabernacle and the priesthood. And then we turn over here and look at the New Testament and say, oh, that's what was really being pointed towards. And, of course, that's a beautiful thing if you study types in the Old Testament. But how is this thief saved? There are things that we can learn 
or that point toward, at least to some degree, our own salvation today? Well, let's read the account one more time. We read it in the beginning, but it says, And one of the criminals who, were hanged, who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, you shall be with me in paradise. So here we have that same little scenario. And we have again the change of heart that kind of comes over this thief on the cross as he begins to recognize some things about Jesus and as he begins to cry out to the only source of help that was there and could have ever helped him. Well, here's what we know about this thief that was saved. Number one, he had heard enough somewhere to know that Jesus was the Messiah. Or maybe he had observed enough to know that Jesus was the Messiah. How do we know that he thought Jesus was the Messiah? Because he knew that Jesus had some kind of a spiritual kingdom. Now, only the Messiah was going to have that. So when we look at what the thief says and we read the implications of that, it becomes a very rich, colorful picture. He believed that Jesus was deity. Now, how do I know that? Because he remits to the other, the other thief that Jesus was not deserving of this punishment. He knew Jesus was special. He knew Jesus apparently was sinless. Also, we see the change of heart. That's called repentance of this man. And we see that Jesus is confessed basically to be the son of God or deity because this thief says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I don't know how much the thief knew in nuance or in very little detail, in small, minute detail, but he knew enough to know that Jesus was the only salvation that he had there on the cross. So what we might say about the repentant thief is that he heard, he believed, he repented, he confessed, and he died with Jesus in death. Now that's very interesting because as we're going to notice in a moment, we die with Jesus in death as well, but it's a different type of death. Well, what else can we say about the thief? Well, yes, he heard, believed, he repented, he confessed, but he died to sin by the physical death that he died. In other words, when he died, he wasn't going to sin anymore. He died to sin. Now, that's very interesting as well because we in the waters of baptism die to sin. So how are we saved? And how does the thief on the cross give us insight into our own salvation? Well, we hear the gospel, do we not? Romans 10, 17. We believe the gospel, Hebrews 11 and 6. We repent of our sins, Luke 13, verse 3. We confess Jesus as the Son of God, Matthew 10, 32. And what happens? We die with Christ in baptism. Now, how do I know that? Well, look at what Paul says in Romans 6. He says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Baptism is a form of death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that like as Christ, or that as Christ, was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For, we have be, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. 
So what's Paul saying here? By the way, Romans 6 is one of those beautiful chapters that give us, I think, the clearest picture of what baptism really is. It is a form of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We die to our sins, we're buried in the waters of baptism, and we rise to walk in newness of life. And so when we are baptized, we die with Jesus in baptism. As Jesus died and was buried, so we die to our sin and we are buried. Well, what else? Well, again, we die to sin, as I just noted, in baptism. How do we know this? Romans 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Christ, or crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. And so you see, in the waters of baptism, we die to sin, we are buried with Christ, and of course we're raised to walk in newness of life. So in conclusion this evening, what does the thief on the cross teach us? What can we learn about the thief on the cross? Well, number one, the thief on the cross may or may not have been baptized, but neither really does it matter in the sense that that is not the paradigm for our salvation today. Number two, the thief on the cross died under another law than what we live under today. And just as we do not abide by the Articles of the Confederation that perhaps back uh, before uh, independence, so this, we do not look back to the Old Testament to prove theologically what we do either. The thief's salvation provides some parallels, uh, but it's not a pattern for what we do to be saved. While something may point to another thing, that thing that is the initial starting point is not necessarily that which the end product does. And I don't know if that makes any sense, but the point is, is just because the thief could be saved by Jesus speaking to him does not mean that's what Jesus says to us today through his word. Jesus saved the thief, but this does not change what Jesus says today to us in, order to, in how we can be saved. And then, of course, lastly, we can only contact the blood of Jesus in baptism. There is no other way in the New Testament that we are told or optioned so that we may contact the blood of Jesus except for in baptism. In fact, we can't even contact the death of Jesus anywhere other than in the waters of baptism. And Romans 6 makes that extremely vivid. And so then this evening, when maybe you're talking to your friends or maybe you believe this yourself and you think, well, you know, the thief on the cross was saved and he wasn't baptized, therefore, maybe God will just save me. Well, you know, God can do whatever he wants. But when God gives a strict command in his law and his New Testament pattern, I think we would be well off to obey that rather than relying on a hunch or relying on false logic about some case such as the thief on the cross in the uh, New Testament. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.